This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run. Please note, I'm a representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior economist to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We are back at Wharton's campus live in the studio. I have two guests, two friends of the program, Brandon Zick from, from Sarah's, a farmland investor. Nora Pickens from Mill Creek Capital. Thank you both for coming to the studio live here at Wharton. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Behind the Markets. We're going to talk to them for the show about their views on the economy, inflation, what's happening in farmland. Uh, But Professor, it was a big week. We had the Fed. We had to get your take on a lot of what you said last week, read out exactly what happened. What's your your latest? Yeah, it it, it is. Um, Yeah. I said the Fed was going to hold and be very aggressive, which they were. It doesn't seem like the market cares, so <laughs> certainly uh, the stock market or the bond market. I mean, really, there's been a little bump up in some of the Fed funds futures, not anything significant. I mean, um, uh, I, I think the market doesn't expect uh, them to go another two um, don't forget also that uh, the uh, Fed funds estimates, as we keep on reporting, are underestimates of what the expectation is because Fed fund futures are hedge assets. They're very effective hedge assets, and therefore they will underpredict what is actually expected. Secondly, you know, uh, it, it isn't like, you know, all of a sudden we got, uh, you know, everyone changed from the March, uh, 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 March report to the June report. The market knew that that the the Fed was still getting more aggressive, so it sort of moved up to that position by then. Um, so that's why it sort of shrugged it off more than anything else. Um, I, I thought that the PPI uh, news was very good. CPI news was also good if you looked at the details. Um, and um, uh, if you, you know, again, uh, uh, now let's talk about what I said was the, the mo- one of the most interesting uh, indicators was what was going to happen to initial jobless claims, um, which was Thursday, the day after the Fed. And by the way, not uh, it it stayed up. Um, in fact, last month, uh, last week was revised up by by one thousand to two sixty two, and this week matched it at two sixty two. This is a big jump from where it was before. Now again. I'd like to see three in a row to tell me there is weakening in the labor market. So, you know, but this puts you on edge. Uh, what is going on here? By the way, jobless claims jumped, but they're still well below their April level. However, uh, when you look into that, they did a big seasonal adjustment. And uh, some of the experts like J.P. Morgan, in other words, say that uh, there's more seasonal adjust, uh, distortion now. In, in that uh, in those uh, continuing jobless claims, so they're not going to be as important as those initial jobless claims. So really interested in next week. Another, in, uh, in other words, another 260 threatens, I think, a negative payroll report for the month of June, um, uh, which, as I said, will catch headlines if that uh, occurs. So we will see uh, whether that happens. Um, uh, as far as the rest of it, I mean, retail sales came in fine, really just about on target, um, uh, um, uh, not way above. Some people call them resilient, uh, et cetera, but they really were not. They were very close to what is what has been the target. Um, uh, one thing that we, we should look at and the Fed should look at was that uh, inflationary expectations, one-year inflationary expectations in the University of Michigan dropped by eight-tenths of a percent from 4.1 to 3.3, the lowest since the uh, pandemic started. That's the biggest drop that, I mean, I, mean, I haven't gone all the way back in the data, but 
it could be the biggest drop since the 1980s, actually, um, down to 3.3. Um, the, uh, the the five to ten year inflation dropped one tenth from three one to three zero. There is you know the inflation expectations are absolutely not a problem whatsoever. The, this idea about you know worrying about getting entrenched uh, inflation expectations has never been a valid worry, uh, and certainly the data uh, uh, here uh, tends to con- uh, confirm it. Uh, let me also say the following that. Um, um, uh, People said the, the Fed upped its uh, GDP uh, number. It did, um, but it still implies a very weak second half of the year. Let me give you the statistics. We had 1.3% GDP growth in the first quarter. That's annualized. We had this quarter, the experts, I mean, now G, uh, Atlanta um, GDP now is one and a half to two. That's also what Goldman Sachs is. So that's... Let's say it's one and a half. So we have it at 1.3 and 1.5. Averages 1.4 in the first half of this year. That's on the pessimistic side. Now, the Fed predicts only 1.0 for the whole year, which means that they're, they're around a half a percent growth for the second half of the year. Now, a half a percent growth, if there's any pro- growth in productivity. Now, we've talked about how terrible productivity has been. But if there's any growth in productivity, implies a, a negative uh, payrolls um, or at least negative hours worked. And hours worked have already plummeted down to uh, post-COVID lows. So, um, if, you know, you know, if the Fed's prediction for the second half and, and it's not that far off when private predictions are right, and we even have a mild resurgence of the negative productivity to slightly positive, we're going to have negative payroll numbers in the second half of this year. Again, I I emphasize that that will have political, uh, a lot of political uh, impact on what the Fed does uh, in the future. And I think if that does happen, it will stay an increase in in uh, in the July uh, data. Um, The the, the, obviously the equity markets are looking way beyond it. Um, I mean, other groups have joined in. It's still a big growth rally. Um, uh, these momentum plays can can continue for a long time. You know, outside of the the big tech growth stocks, you have an, you have valuations of uh, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, and the growth stocks are valuations of thirty, forty, fifty. Uh, you can judge whether that will prove out to be the right thing in the. Around. And we have NVIDIA at 123 times, well, it is, I think it's 80 times forward earnings if those forward earnings come out. Um, these are still pretty massive. I'm not saying they can't be realized, but um, they are pretty massive. Again, nothing is overvalued. I don't think the market is overvalued. I think the, over, I think the market is just about fairly valued now at around 19 and a half times 12-month forward earnings. I think it should be 20. I've said that. So we're just about at value. We have growth probably a bit overvalued and value being a bit undervalued. So, Professor, I, I put out our alt inflation series this week. Instead of 4.1, you know, using the Case-Shiller and Zillow rent, you know, where Zillow rent is annualized around 6%, but Case-Shiller is like zero, our alt inflation number was 1.4 instead of 4.1. Yeah, um, and I should have mentioned that. Um, uh, and, and in fact, when I was on CNBC, I put up a video that, showed that the core service inflation is almost all shelter over the last 12 months, exactly during the time when shelter has been going negative and should not be in there, but only because of the lagged way that the, that the, the statistics are, are going in there. People still talk about year over year inflation using the super lagged uh, housing and rental numbers, which, you know, as you absolutely properly point out, if you take out you actually are now below the Fed target on that core inflation. Big data. Uh, Nora, any comments on the bond market or inflation, what you heard from the professor to start? Sure. I mean, I think it's actually getting really exciting now. You know, we're getting clearly toward the end of this rate hiking cycle. And I'm just curious, you know, we haven't really seen a descent yet at the Fed. And, uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting as we get closer and you get this uh, you know, disagreement or fight between the doves and the hawks, do you think we'll start to see that come out in the dot plot? And if so, does it does it even um, matter at this point? 
But, uh, you know, I, I've always said that that plot is written on tissue paper. Um, they have no idea what they're going to be doing in future months. It's all data dependent completely. I mean, they're just throwing out uh, projections now, um, uh, you know, uh, based on on uh, trends that they see. Um, as I say, uh, all you need is a few negative payrolls to, to really turn the heads around and say, oh, we have to stay on pause in July, and if you continue to see negative payrolls, that's when some of the dubs will say, let's start lowering rates. Um, and now when will those lower housing statistics kick in? Somewhere in the second half of the year. It's hard to tell when they're going to start slowing it down. We also know a big June 2022 20, uh, number uh, is going to come out of the 12-month statistics. It's going to bring year over year down to a very low three-handle next, uh, next month. That's been pointed out in the press. Um, so, I mean, a lot of people are going to say, how much unemployment do you want? Uh, if year-over-year year inflation down to three-something and the forward-looking inflation is, uh, is down to target. It, do, it does seem he threaded the needle without getting the dissent. We did think <laughs> there could be a dissent. Are you still sticking with hold in July? Is that your uh, I'm still. I think there's going to be a hold uh, in July, even though... The implication was one more raise because I think we're going to get a week, a weaker employment report, especially on if the jobless claims in July and other data that's going to show that they can wait some more. Um, uh, the, the real data is not coming in all that strong, and we we all know that that the the, the only reason why people are hiring on jobs is productivity is 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 so low. Uh, and the number of hours worked is so little, but the the total real picture to me looks like extremely slow growth and very little uh, pressure uh, on demand. Brandon, you're talking to a lot of farmers, and any any quick insights on the economy or questions you want to get from from the professor? Yeah, while I don't expect uh, inflation on the ag side to really change the way the Fed looks at things, we do still see some really elevated cost of production numbers uh, from a year ago. Fertilizer prices are lower in fuel than where they were, but seed, equipment, labor costs all continue to be elevated. I think the one thing that's going to come through while we're getting some great rain here in Philadelphia, there's not a lot of bushels of corn grown at the Wharton School. Uh, if this was happening in the Midwest, it might be more beneficial uh, to contain grain prices. But over the last few days, we've seen some elevated uh, movement on the grain side. And I think production is really going to impact those prices and lack of production. So I think there'll be some pressure there, although I don't think it'll change the way the Fed thinks about things. Yeah, the last time Brandon saw you, Professor, you were in Iowa presenting to his conference. Uh, what was the conference, Brandon? Uh, it was a people's company conference uh, for a big ag group in Iowa in January. Yeah, and it was about, uh, you know, I, I lectured on the macro economy, but people le lectured on, on, on land returns, which have been really good, um, uh, you know, from, from what I saw. Um, you know, basically, um, uh, you know, farm one has been uh, a good investment. Uh, we have elevated prices again, yet one has to make a distinction. Prices are not going to go down to pre-COVID levels. A lot of people say, oh, I see high prices. That means we've had high inflation. It doesn't mean forward looking. And remember, the Fed is not looking to get prices back down to that level. It's just lo looking to get it back to the 2% level. I think it really has achieved that overall. Um, and I still think the risks are overdoing it. And I think when we see the labor market uh, uh, loosening up a bit, uh, the Fed will recognize it. That's the optimism of the equity market. All right, Professor. Well, go have a good good weekend, and uh, thanks for your comments yeah. to start the show. Thank you very much. We'll see you again next week. Um, all right, we're going to continue our conversation with uh, Nora Pickens and Brandon Zick. Uh, Nora, Brandon's been a return guest to Behind the Markets, but this is your first time for our Behind the Markets listeners. Tell people a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Mill Creek. Sure. Uh, excited to be here. Um, so I'll start with Mill Creek. We're locally based here in Conshohocken, OCIO, that was founded in 2006. We have approximately $9 billion of assets under management, and our client base is a mix of high net worth and institutions, so foundations, endowments. 
Uh, I specifically sit on the investment side of things. Uh, I oversee our traditional fixed income portfolio as well as alternative income opportunities. I think that's one of the reasons why that Brandon introduced me to you too. I think you do some work together and you you look at farmland as as one of those income opportunities. That's right. Um, We've been working with Brandon for a couple of years now. So uh, as as the professor alluded to, we've been very happy with with the results. That's a good endorsement, Brandon. Farmland (laughs) has been good. Yeah, I love it when other people are talking about our returns. It's great. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I think farmland is one of those categories where it's sometimes hard to bucket. And I think that probably is a reason why it's under allocated into many sort of institutional portfolios. But at Mill Creek, we look at it more of a fixed as a fixed income alternative, um, and that's mostly because number one, you know, the the sort of inflation hedge that it provides that's the main risk, and as we all know, traditional uh, bonds. Um, it has nice correlation properties as well to fixed income, and then also it does provide a pretty steady income profile throughout um, you know the life of the asset, and that's just generated from a range of of different income sources, but um, that allows to buffer some of the volatility in in returns over time, um, which makes it more akin to to a fixed income product in, in our view. So I'm going to get into more of that with you, Brandon, in a second. But because we're, we start off macro with the professor, you talked about inflation, talked about bonds. What do you think about where the bond yields are? How do you see bond yields generally? I mean, it was first year stocks and bonds declined together last year. Yeah. 370s on the 10 year. Yeah. Where do you see the tips bonds, nominal bonds? What do you think about bonds generally? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not going to put myself out there and predict where where the rates where rates are going, but um, we definitely like bonds a lot more than we did in 2021. Um, you know, I, I believe that we we did see a, a sort of a top um, in the end of 2022 when the ten year got to four two. I think it's interesting that we've been inverted for this. Um, long of a period. And I think that's suggesting that we are around, you know, we're, we're going to be basically range bound until the Fed cuts or, um, you know, some some event occurs that, that'll get the, the yield curve back to, to where it, it normally is. And, and that's upward um, position. So in terms of our view, we came into the year slightly overweight credit, just seeing that spreads had actually winded down, provided a nice, a nice entrance point. And as though we get farther into this cycle, um, you know, we're, we're saying pretty neutral to the benchmark. We just don't see anything out there that's particularly interesting, even staying on the short end of the curve, even though short term, and I know a lot of people have been talking about this, obviously you're getting great uh, yields given where the, the the inverted yield curve. But I think over time, you know, that can be a false trap where you really want to make sure you're maintaining some duration in anticipation of a potential uh, sort of end to the cycle and, and rates uh, stay, getting lower again. We were talking about Gunlock right before the show started, and Gunlock was on CNBC with that conversation saying, and and it's interesting, like usually Siegel and Gunlock are on such opposite ends of the spectrum, but I was emailing Siegel right after Gunlock's interview because they're basically on the same exact page on inflation oh. and Gunlock saying, hey, some of these kind of numbers in the CPI are, 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 are kind of stale. And if you looked at real-time stuff, it's really inflation's coming down. But, um, you know, he was saying, hey, a 4% long duration you could get a good capital gains goes down to two. Yeah, um, is that something consistent with what what you're thinking about? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and we saw this again the, in almost every occurrence where the yield curve is inverted. It's everyone's natural inclination is generally go short because why would I, you know, go it's out like five 10 over years. five? Exactly, exactly. Carry trade, positive <laughs> carry to go like one week duration. Exactly, but. Um, you know, we we benched to the Barclays Ag, and I think, you know, or, excuse me, the Bloomberg Ag, and so you know, I think when uh, you know an event occurs where no one's watching, all all we know is that the inverted yield curve is not a natural state of the market, and eventually it does need to end. And so, uh, staying neutral at this point, and even potentially eventually um, lengthening duration to take advantage of that potential capital appreciation, uh, I think makes sense at this point in the cycle. Let's bring in Brandon. So Brandon, tell tell people, for people who are just hearing you for the first time, tell people a little bit more about yourself and Sarah's uh, as, as, and what the approach that you guys bring to Farmland. Sure. Thanks. And thanks again for having me. Uh, I'm the chief investment officer at Sarah's Partners. We're a, an agricultural-based investment firm in South Bend, Indiana. We have a large flagship farmland fund that we've been running for over 15 years now. And then we have some other private equity and growth equity strategies that are kind of in a separate bucket. But our our main fund is focused on owning land, owning dirt, 
Uh, it's a really long duration asset that generates some great income and appreciation over time. And we really like the optionality that comes with owning that dirt. So uh, I'm based in South Bend. Everyone on my portfolio team grew up on a farm just like me and then worked in finance and other aspects of the markets over time. And we put all that together at Cirrus. A lot of diligence going to farms, doing talk about the normal process of buying a farm. What is what is uh, a lot of us are looking over spreadsheets, looking at, you know, cash flows. What what is it? What is you go to buy a farm? What's it like? Yeah, I mean, it's very similar from at the beginning point, at least the spreadsheets and the cash flows. The, the only difference is really what are the inputs that go into that? And it takes a lot of on-site diligence to understand how are you generating that income in, in farmland? There's no cheap beta. So there's expensive beta out there, and then there's actually generating some real alpha. And we try to do that by sourcing the best farmers to work with, uh, being able to do value add and capex on properties to drive revenues higher. And then once you own a farm, uh, while our intention is to own it for 20, 30, 40 years, there's a lot of other optionality that comes with owning real estate and dirt, whether it's development, renewable energy, traditional energy easements, um, carbon capture, a lot of things like that, that that we really evaluate all up front. But when we're buying a property, it has to cash flow as a farm. The, the point you just made there, something I talked about with both of you, is that there is a huge opportunity to bring farmland beta to the market. We, we got it. Somebody's got to bring farmland beta eventually, but it's it's hard, right? There's We've talked about on our show before with you that there's only like two farmland REIT structures um, is, is that still true? Only two farmland REITs, and and to get access to this asset class is not easy. Yeah, there are two public farmland REITs. There are a handful of other private investors like ourselves. But if you look at the overall row crop far, or farmland market in the U.S., it's less than three percent that's institutionally owned. Part of the reason being in other sectors of ag, whether it's equipment, seed fertilizer, uh, just grain handling, there's been a huge roll-up of all the all the players over time. So now you have a few very large players in each of those categories. On the land side, 40% of land is owned by family farmers, and over 50% of land is owned by families that used to farm but still own that ground. So that roll-up really hasn't happened. That's really what we're trying to do at Cirrus, is um, do that institutional roll-up uh, over the course of an evergreen fund, be able to put together, you know, starting with two or three million dollars worth of farms, to then have a thirty or forty million dollar asset that then would have more institutional interest. So, it's hard work to do it. I think um, ultimately there will be a, a public beta product that people can invest in for low fees. Right now, unfortunately, um, they it's get beta, that. but they're paying a lot more for it in some instances. So you have to be careful. Let's talk about what we think return expectations are. It's easy in bonds where right, the starting yield is generally returned. Siegel talked about the 20 PE being like a 5% earnings yield for stocks and that sort of stocks get this sort of inflation hedge naturally because companies grow their earnings with inflation over time. So 5% is sort of a real number. What's your expectation? I'll start with Brandon and then Nor you can say how you view it versus the other things you look at. But how do you think about the returns that you expect to be able to earn on the farms that you are buying? How do people think about it for asset allocation? Yeah, there's a few different sources of return, certainly income uh, being the first. And you know we're really targeting, um, on an unlevered basis, about a 5% cash-on-cash return uh, in terms of income generated on that property. Over time, there should be passive land appreciation that comes simply from yield gains. So as increases in productivity happen, more bushels of corn or soybeans are grown on the farm. Assuming static prices as demand continues to increase, you're going to have more earnings. So there's more intrinsic value there. And then there is still a lot of low-hanging fruit in farmland to do value add. Farms that were owned by absentee landlords that you can make a CapEx investment and increase yields pretty dramatically. So we kind of, if you grouped each of those into about a 5% bucket um, on a gross basis over time, you know, you're in that you know, 12 to 15%. And on a net basis, you know, eight to 10% is kind of what we're targeting. So how do you think about it from when you build that in? Uh, is that is that exactly how you think about it? Do you make any modifications? How do you think about it versus the other opportunities? Yeah, I think that that's right on par with how we think about it as well. And, and just in terms of bringing it back to portfolio construction, when you look back at a key component is just the consistent return above CPI. Um, and so that's been almost entirely positive, except for a couple brief um, moments um, historically. And so for our por portfolio construction methodology, just to keep that diversification, 
I think that's an added benefit when it comes to sort of return generation over time. And versus tips bonds yielding <laughs> two, if, if you know, below two. Yeah. And the thing with tips, um, you know, I think if you are not paying attention to the market and sort of miss how tips returns react in, in short term periods, um, you would have thought in 2022 they would have just done tremendously. Um, but of course, they were down 12 12% ish. Um, because of that rate component. And so for us, bringing farmland in as uh, in addition to tips adds another dynamic that uh, over time sort of pushes out that efficient frontier for portfolios from a fixed income perspective. So, Brandon, talk about what are the farms that are interesting today a little bit. You talked about there's different types. There's these row crops, other types of crops. At Ceres, what are you most excited about? Where do you think things are a little frothy? Yeah, I mean, we're always focused uh, almost exclusively on row crops. Most of our farms, you know, over 95% are east of the Mississippi. So we're a big uh, believer in water longer term and just having access to good water, whether it's natural rainfall when you're trying to grow a crop or replenishing and thriving aquifers. That Those are the areas we want to be associated with. And, you know, when you think about inflation and the demand, the global demand for food increasing, it's really the grains that are going to drive that. So we like land that grows corn, soybeans, wheat, but then we also like optionality with other types of specialty crops. So higher revenue crops like potatoes, tomatoes, melons. So we do a lot of that on irrigated ground in the upper Midwest, the Eastern Corn Belt, which is where we're focused. There are plenty of other ways to invest in agriculture and farmland, permanent crops like vineyards and orchards being a big, um, pretty common example. That's more of a J-curve type private equity investment with a huge upfront investment and then multiple years before you start seeing cash flow. We're less interested in that. And you're also kind of including a component of uh, the need to be the producer. And while I grew up on a family farm, no one in my family even would call me a farmer. And certainly our farm tenants wouldn't. And and we do that by choice. We don't want to be the production manager. That's a risk that is better assumed by farmers and better controlled. And, you know, they can arbitrage that. We want to be the landowner that's just earning a steady rent. And we try to be active in terms of making those farm improvements over time. But this should look much more like a bond than what um, like a permanent crop private equity investment would look like. Anything on uh, I, in, in the, the news just in the last week has been wheat, who has been sort of surging just in a week, if you look at what's been happening recently. Is there anything going on? I, I, I think there was some part of the geopolitical story with Russia, Ukraine is a key part of the wheat story. But anything going on? in some of these specific things that you'd, you'd highlight for us? Yeah, on the wheat side, you're right. Um, you know, Russia and the Ukraine is a big driver there. The other driver is that any wheat that's going to be harvested in the U.S. had to be planted in the fall, at least in terms of winter wheat. So there's no new um, source of that coming on. So the inventory, whatever's harvested, is it until next fall when we plant again. On the corn side, there's been some big movement over the last two days because of a pretty sustained drought we've seen throughout the Midwest. And I think if you talk to farmers and crop consultants, they're saying that there's going to be lower yields, that the top end yield has come off. And uh, while it was really dry in the spring, you saw some very efficient planting and farmers were able to get a crop in the ground. But I don't expect record yields to come off of that crop, which was previously what um, the USDA at least was talking about. So I think that's starting to weigh on prices and, and push them a little bit. And to the extent that this drought continues, you kind of have a key time over the next month uh, for corn uh, to receive rain and lower temperatures for pollination. And that, you know, could play out pretty dramatically. Nor is there any, you rely on Brandon to do some of these decisions, <laughs> yeah. but is there any commodities or, or, or uh, agriculture things you think about? Yeah, I mean, we we don't invest specifically in terms of trying to choose a commodity from period to period, but uh, we definitely obviously follow how the market is um, playing out. And just from where I sit, I can tell when crops are going up, farmland is outperforming about from the number of inbound emails I get from new managers um, trying to raise money in the space. So that's my internal gauge for, for where commodities are, are at any, any given point. Is it hot? It's a hot time? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, we're seeing a lot of uh, strategies coming out of the woodwork uh, and 
getting interested in trying to raise capital uh, for farmland and other commodity investments. So, so Mr. Zick, are you a seller here? Are you selling <laughs> farms or are you buying farms or is it changing, you know, how that return? You talked about you want to get 5% cash on cash, which means you have to buy it, you know, at a price. Are people paying too much for some of these things? Yeah, usually if, if Nora is saying that, that should be a contraindicator for if you want to be investing in the market. Um, we're always in the market because we have an evergreen fund. It is much more difficult to buy farms at those cash flow levels because not really other institutions are driving that, um, but just farmers with cash are our primary competition, and they're coming off of two very profitable years. And I think people misunderstand a little bit. It's not like stocks where, or farmland is not like stocks where everything's for sale every day that the market's open. In farmland, if you've been, if you're a farmer that's uh, really wanted a property next door for 20 years, well, when that comes available, you and another neighbor may be the two people that drive that market. So the market is still very inefficient. We have to say no uh, when we go to a public auction or when we're bidding on a property much more than we say yes. We're probably today only buying one out of every 40 or 50 properties we look at. And seven or eight years ago, it'd be one out of every dozen. So it's harder to- Is that to, because of price? It's all because of price. Yeah. I mean, if it gets to the point that we're bidding on it, then it's met all of our other screens in terms of quality, a good tenant, um, good water, drainage, et cetera. Uh, but it's really price that's driving that. And it's typically not institutions. There are areas, I think, in the farmland market where there are some more crowded trades. Permanent crops, like I mentioned, is heavily invested by institutions, both domestically and overseas, that have really- um, increase the amount of almonds, pistachios, wine grapes, table grapes that have been grown in the U.S. And I think that's uh, an area we're not really interested in investing in. And the prices are where they are, and I think they're too high. There are also other regions in the U.S., like the Mississippi Delta and the Southeast, where your history of ownership is just much larger properties. So that tends to lend itself more to institutions who want to deploy capital with bigger checks. And that usually drives returns down. So in those areas, we're less interested in kind of deploying a significant amount of capital because there's just more institutional competition. Uh, in the Midwest, we're really doing that institutional roll-up. Our primary competition are the strategic buyers, the farmers. So it really just comes down to is there good opportunity? And, and you always want to be in the market because whether prices are high or low, that farm might only sell once and, and you want to be able to participate if it's for sale. Yeah, and I would just say... If um, that's an element of what drew us to this strategy in particular is that, you know, when we're doing our diligence, a big part of what we're looking for is a competitive moat. And um, we don't want to invest and then see, you know, a bunch of, of money come into the space and push down returns. And so farming really is highly fragmented and relationship driven. And it's something you can get into the space immediately, but you're going to pay up for it. And it takes people in the industry for years, decades to build those relationships and know exactly when an off-market deal is uh, coming and coming to for sale and be able to to foster those relationships and, and take advantage of that. When you're sitting down with Brandon, what are the what are some questions that you would ask him as, as you're thinking about the portfolio or other things? What what with your diligence hat on, what are the things you would ask him? Yeah, um, we we focus a lot on sort of looking forward, how he's positioning the portfolio, where the opportunities are. I think, um, you know, recently, I don't know if, Brandon, you want to chat about this at all, but um, the alternate sources of income that help diversify the portfolio that have really um, come into fruition over the past handful of years. Um, and we see that as a, po as a positive because it does add more robust cash flows. Um, over time. Yeah, that's a great point. And when we're buying properties, really, we really focus on underwriting it as a farm. So that's really your base income. Um, you know, that's the intrinsic value of, the, of that property is as a farm property. So what income can we generate from that? Uh, but once we own the property, then we're really active in trying to find, well, what are other revenue sources? I thought early on, having grown up in northeastern Pennsylvania, that oil and gas was going to be a big part of owning farms and, and a big part of the revenue stream in the Midwest. It's less so than we probably expected, but now there are much larger revenue streams coming from solar, wind, cell phone towers, um, easements that you can sell on uh, property. Are we, are, we, are we just saying AI is a farm, there's a farm play in, with AI? 
I didn't say that. You've got to connect AI to everything here. So now we're connecting it to farmland with yeah. ours. Okay. Well, I, I do think technology has played a big part in uh, farming and agriculture for a long time, and that's continuing to, uh, to manifest. Uh, farmers, I mentioned the cost of production is going up on farms. Uh, you're t- they're trying to pull labor out of the system. They're trying to generate the best yields they can from using data. I do think AI will play a part in genetics and in kind of the crop consulting use of fer- efficient use of fertilizer part of the business. And that will only benefit farmers. And ultimately, if you're an active landowner, that should benefit you too. Because the productivity goes up, your yields exactly. go up. Exactly. And you would think, um, you know, because a lot of land has been farmed for so long, you would think you'd get similar yields on farms that have similar soils across the street. And maybe to some extent, um, they're they're on par, but uh, by implementing technology and better use of inputs, you can certainly drive yields. You would also think the rents would be very similar, but they can be very different too, just based on who's the landowner and how much does that landowner understand what's actually being produced on the farm. So while we're not farmers, we spend a lot of time meeting with our tenants to really understand why they're doing that crop rotation, what their yields are, how that's benefiting the farm over time. Because for us, this is a 20, 30, 40 year asset. So when you think about sustainability, it's not a kind of buzzword for us that's really part of the underwriting it's having a profitable um, sustainable farm because this asset can be paired up with long-term liabilities with pension funds and endowments and foundations because this should last for hundreds of years so what percent of farms can add towers or solar or things like that Really, any of them. If you if you asked me, it's 10, with the best use case. Like, it's, yeah, if you asked me ten years ago, I would have thought, well, the majority of our footprint is in the Great Lakes regions. We uh, have a lot of snow and rain. Why would you put um, solar panels there? But happens to be in areas that are closer to distribution and transmission, closer to the grid, to the population centers. So there's a lot of demand for that, especially in specific states where there are mandates for higher percentage of renewables. We're active in that. Uh, there are certain farms that we wouldn't put under solar options because we think there's an even higher and better use. Uh, Ford announced during the first quarter a large uh, electric vehicle battery project in Marshall, Michigan. Uh, I think about two-thirds of the acres they bought to build this plant were purchased from us. So that was the highest and best use of that farm, uh, industrial But we're also looking, um, we try to make these properties the most productive farms they can be. But then if there is a higher and better use, whether it's commercial, industrial, renewable, uh, other things like that, you know, we're really active in looking at it. You talked about some of the private equity investments you're making. You want to just talk a little bit more about that? I want to talk about the labor trends and how hard, you know, one of the things for the economy is just lack of labor slack, uh, that there's so much hard finding workers. I want to hear what you're finding on the worker front and then how you're trying to solve that with some of these investments you're making. Yeah, throughout agriculture, labor has always been uh, has always been an issue from the dairy farm I grew up in to where we are today. Uh, taking labor out of the system, human labor, is really important because labor can be unreliable, can be expensive. It's Humans are unreliable? Uh, yeah, imagine that. Uh, <laughs> imagine that. But uh, I think to the extent that when I talk to our, our farmers, when they can pull labor out of the system, you know, that's a huge benefit for them. And so that you're seeing it across the board, whether it's robotic milking machines, uh, just larger equipment, uh, GPS, to try to pull uh, operators, whether it's tractor or other types of equipment operators out of the system. On our private equity side, some investments we've made on uh, the growth equity fund are more around robotic harvesting, AI for crop scouting for um, crops within greenhouses. We have a, a large automated greenhouse that grows lettuce and leafy greens in South Bend, Indiana. And using those types of technologies has been a huge benefit uh, instead of having um, you know, in an automated greenhouse, instead of having a lot of workers moving around trays, you have engineers and agronomists that are there. So, uh, you know, much higher paid, higher skilled workers and the low skills coming out. I certainly think most farmers, when you think about um, specialty crops, vegetables, um, tree fruit, anything like that, that requires a lot of hand labor, there's a lot of stress in the system because of uh, immigration, just labor costs, labor participation. A lot of uh, people don't want to do this work. So, there's going to continue to be, I think, massive amounts of investment in that area to pull labor out. 
You think they should change the immigration policy? Is that a formal statement from Sarah's partner? <laughs> it's definitely not. Uh, what I would like to see is more people who want to do uh, the, the work that needs to get done across the agricultural industry. I think it's uh, very difficult to get workers to do that type of work, uh, even if they're paid well. And we see in other parts of the world, whether it's Mexico or South America, uh, the same crops being grown, whether it's blueberries, avocados, asparagus, that's getting picked at a, a very, very low wage, uh, you know, dollars per day. And that's what U.S. farmers are competing with. So to the extent that they can use robotics or uh, just more efficient machinery to pull labor out of the system to bring down that cost of harvest, that's really important to them. I mean, I will say we need some sensible immigration policies. I mean, I, I, I see it myself trying to hire people, keep people. I have good people that end up not being able to get their H-1B visa or whatever. So there's all sorts of issues that need to be fixed somewhere in that system. Um, in terms of in other things, I guess interest rate, we talked about the beginning part of the Fed hiking, maybe they hold, maybe they could keep going. How are these higher rates impacting your investment decisions and 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 that sort of things that require capital how, how are all these things impacting you so we historically have not used much leverage in purchasing farms and today within our fund we have about six percent leverage and the only reason we don't have zero is because the rates are low and locked for quite a long time yet so um, you know we see some positive carry there so we're going to keep that on but within the ag system, you know, there is a lot of operating debt that gets used by farmers. Farmland itself in states like Iowa and Illinois, you'll see statistics that say that 85% of land is on free and clear of any debt. And that's for a number of reasons. One is the fragmented ownership amongst families and people not wanting to co-sign on a mortgage together when they can't decide on where to have Thanksgiving dinner. So I think that leverage in the farmland system and the, the rate environment will impact more operating debt for farmers. Certainly on the equipment side, you see really strong used equipment prices because new is so expensive and the cost of financing has gone up. Or how, are, how are these higher rates impacting what you think about um, either with, in here or in, in other places of your portfolio? Are, are you seeing any risks to the other parts of your portfolios from these high rates? Yeah. I mean, we've gone so far um, in such a short amount of time. So clearly... Um, it does take some adjustments across the board. Um, I think the biggest issue that I'm thinking through and sort of um, trying to position our portfolio in the best way possible is over long periods, uh, illiquid investments provide a nice uh, buffer or um, premium to the liquid market. But because the liquid market went up so fast, um, we really have seen that come come in. And so at year end 2022, you know, high yield bonds are trading eight, eight and a half percent, nine percent. And when we launched our fund, our fund of funds, which um, series is, is part of um, Treasury, we're at one percent. So, right. so that's, that's a, a big jump. <laughs> yeah. And so we were targeting six to eight percent. And clearly that's a great um, outcome for anyone looking at the alternative as being a one percent yield. Um, so that obviously that story has changed. And now with high yield at eight or nine percent and that uh, th our target returns originally at six to eight percent. Clearly, we need if we believe and we do that we're going to be in an interest rate environment that's higher for longer. You can call it three to four percent. Not I'm not saying, you know, getting getting back up to the 80s, 1980s, but um, that six to eight percent probably needs to shift higher um, in order to continue to make. Um, that spread attractive to from the from a liquidity perspective. So, um, for investors that understand that and and know that this is a longer term investment, and eventually assets do adjust, and that illiquid premium spread will again just to longer term averages. Um, they understand they're fine with it, but I think for some uh, investors that are newer to the process. Uh, you know, a, a money market at five percent and high yield, a liquid at, at eight percent, nine percent is a good option. So, um, it's really thinking through how to adjust the portfolio to make it as attractive as possible, but still taking the same risk that we want um, in, in in client portfolios. What are some of these other alternatives that go in this type of fund to fund strategy? That sort of diversified alternatives. Sure. Um, so our focus is really on 
short duration, real asset, hard asset type strategies that do provide this t- a t- an inflation hedge to tra- traditional fixed income and also some interest rate diversity. So um, the, the strategies that we're invested in cycle through their asset base or securities in general um, relatively quickly so they can adjust to the interest rate environment. Um, so one example besides farming is commercial real estate bridge lending, uh, not offices uh, per se, but uh, more of you know, multifamily, mixed-use types buildings that, uh, you know, you can get a 50% LTV loan for 12 to 13% uh, duration of around 18 months, anywhere between 12 and 18 months. So um, that is providing nice income. Um, Again, the portfolio is changing over quickly, so it's always adjusting to the interest rate environment. And you have a lot of downside. Um, That building or asset needs to fall 50% 50% for our principal to be protected, so or excuse me, to be impacted um, because we have first lien on, on the asset. So build um, strategies like that where there's a lot of collateral underlying um, the position. Uh, again, because we're using this as a fixed income alternative, we're not trying to take a lot of risk in this part of the portfolio and funds that are low leveraged as well. So in a period, again, like Q1 2023, a lot of volatility. Some funds with high leverage just were stuck and couldn't do anything. We saw their managers be able to take advantage of, of some of that dislocation. So, yeah, there was a very clear case when yields were 1%, why you would want this. And it probably could be a meaningful allocation. It could replace pe- most of people's fixed income. Portfolio. There's nothing of value when things were 1%. How, how do you think about sizing these things back then? How do you think about sizing it now? Has that changed at all? It has not. Um, we and that we view these alternative income strategies as a strategic hold, um, and so we have guided clients to allocate ten percent uh, within their call it a sixty forty within that forty percent bucket. Um, so again, you're going to have periods quarter to quarter where the spread from Ill- from privates to publics compresses, and this is just not a trading strategy. And yeah. so we're trying to target um, funds such as. Um, the farmland uh, option for really strategies that we see are through a cycle that, you know, you hold it through a cycle, it'll provide uh, that premium and um, stable return pattern uh, throughout throughout that that longer period. Do you, do you like high yield bonds at eight and a half to nine? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I liked it more with the third quarter of 2022. Uh, spreads are just, they're just not high enough for us at this point still. And uh, it's like we talked about earlier um, at 400 over treasuries, that's below the long term average. Um, we're still head, you know, we're still late in the cycle. I'm hesitant to take any cre- credit risk uh, with the Fed still hiking and potentially sort of we're headed into a slowdown and, and with the yield curve inverted. Um, I just, the, the the top the top line yield is attractive, but um, from the downside risk perspective, I'm I'm just not there yet. Interesting, Brandon. Where in terms of the other aspects of of your portfolios, anything you think we haven't hit on that you think is important about the things that you guys focus on at, at Series? Yeah, I think on the farmland side, we've really covered it. You know, really the the takeaway I think people should have is it's a very still a very inefficient asset class with a lot of optionality. And if you have a, a good active manager in those inefficient asset classes, you can find some really nice returns over time. So what I recommend when people think about farmland, it really comes down to manager selection more than just choosing the asset class. Uh, that manager is really going to matter. On the, the venture growth private equity side, I think there's a ton of opportunity out there. Um, there's a lot of investments that will be vaporized. That's just the way those markets work, whether it's in ag or elsewhere. And we actually see a real strategic fit between uh, the private equity business we have and then the farmland side where the best diligence tool for uh, products that people are trying to sell to farmers is to actually talk to farmers that we'd ask them, would they use it? Do they see value? Would you pay for it? And so we really, um, we see a lot of value there. I think one thing that you and I have talked about separately that I just want to mention is, especially with the rate environment being at what it is, and we've talked about the banking system a number of times, just the important of importance of local banks to the ag industry. Uh, you know, we get scared when we hear things like, well, we probably only need five or six big banks because there's still a lot of lending that happens at the local level by loan officers that understand the ag industry. So while we don't use it, 
farmers do and people in these areas, um, they really need lenders that know what they're talking about. So to the extent that um, local banking remains an important part of the, the U.S. banking system, we think in ag, it's probably more important there than anywhere else. That, that's super interesting. And, you know, we, we have a mutual friend, Jim Bianco, who uses the term bank walk. And, you know, one of my colleagues also has, has been thinks he came up with it before, Jim. <laughs> but, um, you know, the bank walk sort of continues at 5%. I mean, a lot of the banks are not paying what I say appropriate interest or not, you could earn 5% in treasuries. And, you know, I, I went to one bank, I won't name whose presentation, but like the front page of the presentation basically said, we have the lowest cost of deposits in, in, in the industry. It's like, yes, we're not paying our people because we think they're that should mean you have the shortest money. duration, right? <laughs> That's but, what it should mean. Right? So it's like a very tricky dynamic if you're not paying the 5%. Do you think, Nora, they will start to pay 5%? Do you think this big walk, would you you buy or sell our banks? Goodness gracious. Um, I do have an antidote to that as well. I mean, I think the the larger banks who have the, the leverage in the market are sort of too big to fail almost. Um, they don't need to pay top rates uh, to depositors. And so Bank of America CEO said that he's like, I don't want any more deposits. Basically, I'm not paying. Yeah. I'm not paying the rates. Yeah, there's literally lines out the door for depositors to, that want they've heard the news, read the newspapers, um, want to get in because they feel that their money is safe there. So it's just a competitive edge that I think will probably continue uh, for some time. Yeah. And for businesses, especially uh, to carry a balance, if you think your your principal is actually at risk at a local bank, it's almost malpractice as a fiduciary to keep it there. And that's to me, that's a problem in the banking system that needs to be resolved, because if depositors are unsure if they're if their money's safe, if there's real principal at risk, then they have to have other options. And uh, where we are in South Bend, Indiana, there is a chase, but there's no city and wells left a few years ago. So if you're looking at only five or six large banks that are out there, you're you're really limiting choices. And in my opinion, to ask depositors, your your typical mom and pop to actually underwrite uh, the the inventory book at their local bank. I mean, that's just silly. If the Fed's not doing it, then and the FDIC, then how are depositors going to do that? On that cherry note, if people want to find more about Sarah's Partners or Mill Creek, where should they find you? Uh, so we're at SiriusPartners.com. You can see some information, and there's plenty of people to contact there at our firm that can answer questions that you have. Brandon, always a pleasure to get you. And Nora from Mill Creek, where to find you? MillCreekCap.com. Thank you. This is great. Dion, thanks for helping us here in the studio, keeping us set up. Um, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.